I'm going to start with a quiz. All right, so here we go. Who is this man? I thought someone would get it right away. In fact, probably, probably there are some people. Okay, Thatcher. William You're looking at your children's notes, huh? <laughs> You're all over it. You got it. This is William Carey, 1761 to 1834. So think about when he was, when he was born. 70, what's happening in the world this time? 1761. He's born in England, by the way. Born in uh, Paulersbury, this small rural village in the middle of England, living a poor and simple life. But what's happening around this time? The colonies are here, right? So this is England, and the colonies are coming over. America wasn't even around yet. I mean, the Americas were, but the United States of America wasn't even formed yet. He was there. Just that slavery was, yeah, up and at him for sure. Um, he is known. There's a little phrase about him. When, when people in church history speak about William Carey, they speak about him as being the, the father of, of modern missions. Because really, uh, until his day, uh, missions activity of going out, which seems so normal to us, right? We go out, we send missionaries, we hear of missionaries from foreign lands. That really didn't happen very much. But William Carey was one who just, who just stirred things and uh, really was the catalyst to see modern missions, the modern missions movement take off. Uh, I just want to tell you about his life a little bit because he had a fascinating life. As a young boy, he loved botany. What botany mean? Lydia, you have any idea what botany means? No, Keelan, do you know what botany means? Plants. Yeah, I love plants, love trees, and, and all that sort of thing. But unfortunately, his sin was, skin was too sensitive to the sun, and so botany was, was bad for him. He wanted to be a, a gardener, but that didn't work out. And so, at the age of 14, he became a shoemaker, which, you know, he didn't make Nikes back then, but he, he made shoes, which are really important. They didn't have big factories, but he was a... He began to be a shoemaker, just began to be an apprentice and, and learn the trade. But while William Carey was learning about how to make shoes, he was actually learning far more because there was another young boy who was apprenticing there as well. Um, he was a Bible-believing young man with a genuine relationship with the risen Christ. His name was John War. So just think about it, 14 years old. Kids, if you're 14, you think about you're going to work, they were just starting, or you had some contacts, and yet you meet this guy, and uh, he's sort of a nominal Christian, lukewarm Anglican at the time, and you start talking to him, and you start talking about religion, you start talking to him about Jesus, and, 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 and as they worked, they would talk about religion, and, and John War would talk about Jesus, and the sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and, and how he calls us all to repent, and believe, and trust in Christ, and William Carey being from the Church of England, would no argue that the rituals there were good and, and no, I'm going to trust the church because that's what's always been there. But the Lord was working on William Carey's heart. When he was 17 years old, England called a national day of prayer. Why do you think England called a national day of prayer when William Carey was 17 years old? Yeah, and what's happening in England at the time? They're losing. And so I said, oh no, this is bad. We need to seek God's help because the Americas are winning is actually what it was. And it's, it's kind of a different perspective. It, the victors always tell the history story, right? But the rebellious American colonies, right? The war with them was turning bad. No one knew how it, how it was going to turn out. So I needed to turn to the Lord. So William Carey, 
um, went to his friend's church, a congregational worship service, and heard a man preach from Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. And Carrie would later write, I concluded that the Church of England, as established by law, was the camp in which all were protected from the scandal of the cross. And that I ought to bear the reproach of Christ among the dissenters. In other words, I got to get out of this Church of England where everything just seems right, but it's not right. They're, they're not talking about Christ. They're not talking about the reproach of Christ. They're not talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. And his exaltation. And so he left and, and his life was forever changed. He left the Church of England and t- began attending a Congregationalist church. Now he loved reading. He loved learning even though he wasn't really educated very much. Um, but with his newfound vibrant faith in Jesus, in fact I've seen this many times before, people who don't like to read all of a sudden come to faith in Christ and realize that God has communicated to us in a book and they become the most avid readers that I know. And God just changes and transforms hearts. I've seen that with several men. To, to do that, and it did it with William Carey, and, and uh, he began reading it and reading the Bible over and over again. In fact, he found out it was written in Greek, and so he, he started learning Greek so he could read the New Testament in its original language, and the Lord was really working on his, his heart to conform him to the image of Christ. When he was 22, he uh, was baptized by immersion then, joined up with a particular Baptist, and two years later, when he was 24, he was invited to preach at this small dying Baptist church. And for the next several years, he had the opportunity not only to work as a shoemaker, but also then to preach God's word and to minister God's word as his 24-year-old. And um, he, because the church wasn't enough to support him, um, but he, they did what they could, and he taught what he could and what he knew, and he was just growing and growing. And, and it's interesting that you combine that with a, um, his also his second love, not only the Bible. Do, do you guys know what his second love was? He had a real interest in, Yvonne, you should know this, geography. <laughs> he was interested in geography. My, my wife's trail name is The Map because she just loves geography. He loved geography, learned about all the populations of the world, and he kind of made this, uh, this makeshift map that he put up on the wall and uh, learned about every nation, particularly learned their population and what their major religions were. Um, he learned from books, he learned from the, the international sections of newspapers, had this great heart for the peoples of the world, and, and he began to preach and teach Matthew twenty eight nineteen, go and make disciples of all the nations. And he began to preach and teach that it was our duty to go out to the nations with the gospel and make disciples. This, this command in Matthew 28, in, in fact, why don't you turn over there, Matthew 28, this command that Jesus gave to his disciples, which in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He began to preach that this wasn't just applicable to the apostles, but was applicable to us as well. And um, he began to promote this idea to send people out to the nations where Christ has not yet been proclaimed. For, him, for us, it seems natural, but not so in his day. One story tells about he was in a church at preaching on, on, on this theme of missions and how we need to go out and how we need to spread the gospel, especially to the, the heathen and those who don't have any category for God. And he was preaching, and a fellow minister rebuked him and said, Young man, sit down. Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, 
He'll do it in His time without you or without me. That was the prevailing attitude of many people of the day. Right? So steeped in the view of the sovereignty of God that says we don't, we don't act. And they're wrong. But they, they didn't realize it. I mean, there's a blind to it. Williams Carey, though, kept pushing this and kept pushing this issue to begin to sway the day. And, and he attended this annual Baptist ministers meeting in 1791. So in 1791, he's about 30 years old. He attends this meeting. Um, several sermons are preached and supporting this position about how we need to send out. Yet at the meeting, Carey's proposal to organize a society to send people out was denied. It was basically delayed. No, we, we won't do that. And so this year, 1792, was really the, the big meeting. He was aiming up for this next meeting, and he wrote a book, the, the short title of which is right there on the screen, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Now, the title even goes on beyond that, um, but that's just the short title of it. But essentially what he's talking about is he's talking about our obligation to use means, that is to go out to see heathens, that is people who don't know Christ, to be converted to, to Jesus. Now, the book wasn't a long book. Some people I have seen call it a pamphlet. It's 87 pages. Uh, the pages are, are really short. Uh, you can read it uh, online. You can read it out loud in less than three hours. So it's, it's really, you can be edifying for your reading even today. It's a small book, but yet it was an influential book. It has five sections. The first section was an exposition of this passage, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and teach all the nations. And our, and Carrie argued that's not just for the apostles, it's for us. The second session, section was a, a history of missionary activity. Starting with Jesus, heavy on Acts. And then even some in church history, the missionary activity, over half of that chapter, as I, as I read it this week, was on, was on Acts. Um, the third section was just this data dump, what this map that he put on the wall of, of all the countries in the world, and he listed their populations and their, uh, and their missions, or, and their religions. And so you can just read page after page, you can kind of skip those pages if you want to read, because it's so just data, you can see that. The fourth section, <clears throat> he answered objections to those who think that people ought not to go out their own nation. And preach the gospel, including the, the challenges, the distance that people must travel, or the danger being harmed on the way, or the difficulty of obtaining the language, or the, the challenge of raising such funds, of, of the thought that we have enough troubles here, we have enough people here to reach, that we don't need to go out there. And he answered every single one of those objections. And then finally, in the last section of the book, there's a real practical section on how such missionary activity could take place, trying to how we could form a society in this endeavor to, to raise money, to gear up, to really pray, to send people out. And that was in 1792. And uh, that publication, that book, coincided with this ministerial meeting of the Baptists. And at that meeting, William Carey was given the opportunity to preach. He said, oh, young man, you're interested in this. Why don't you go ahead and preach? And so he preached on Isaiah 54, Verses 2 and 3 in which it says, Enlarge the place of your tent. You will spread abroad to the right and left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Which is a, it's a text about the enlarging, expanding work of God. And we don't have a manuscript of this message. We don't know exactly what William Carey said, but there's one thing that he pounded again and again. He said this. He said, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things. Attempt great things. Five months later, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed 
in the home of Mrs. B.B. Wallace in Kettering, England, October 2nd, 1792. And that society promoted the evangelization of all the countries in the world. And what they did, they, they raised funds and they sent out missionaries. So they established this missionary society. And, and soon after it was formed, they heard of a man named John Thomas, who was a former surgeon, and yet he did some ministry work. He was over working for the East India com- country in Bengal. He's really a perfect candidate to send. He had, he had familiarity with the culture. He, he already did some ministry among the people there. And the society was willing to send him if they could find a suitable companion for him. Who do you think they found? William Carey. In fact, uh, the minutes to the meeting says that uh, when asked, William Carey readily answered in the affirmative. I mean, this is the sort of thing. William, will, will you go with, with this man, John Thomas, to India? And um, what I like to do in those situations where it's immensely obvious, I like to say, let me pray about it. Yes, I'll go. That's kind of like how I like to, to say that. I think that's what William Carey did. So April 1793... John Thomas and William Carey depart for India. Now, it's not easy. In fact, it's difficult. You want to read about some difficult labors and trials? You just read about the life of William Carey. Um, in fact, it was so difficult, John Thomas quickly abandoned William Carey and just started up his own surgery practice again just to raise money to survive. But to make a long story very short, just say he went to India and never came home. He was 40 years of faithful labor in India, starting schools for children, theological uh, schools for theologians, training pastors, translated the Bible into seven different languages. Just an amazing man. And, and those ministry in India, 700 were converted, which might seem small in this country, millions and millions. He left a huge lasting legacy because that was a strong foundation that went into India. His legacy is still felt today. One man said this, William Carey saw India not as a foreign country to be exploited, but as his heavenly father's land to be loved and saved. That's why William Carey is called the, the father of modern missions. Uh, that's, that's why he was instrumental in establishing the Baptist Missionary Society, because from William Carey going out, then others began to go out and out. And so more and more people from Britain, and then even Adoniram Judson was really the fruit of William Carey as well, is Adoniram Judson in Americas later, um, soon afterwards, I'm not sure, 10, 15, 20 years after that, went, and he went abroad too, and first met up with William Carey when he was going to Burma, India on his way to Burma. But William Carey really like was the guy who opened the door to the whole modern missions movement. Well, I tell all of that to you um, because that's almost exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, you can open there if you haven't already. Uh, we're going to see the disciples with the exact same heart um, seeking the Lord. And we're going to see God opening the door for worldwide missions. Um, Really opening, opening the door for worldwide Christian missions. Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now there were at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The title of my message this morning is The Fathers of Christian Missions. 
And that's a little bit play on, on William Carey, who is the father of modern missions. Because these leaders of the church at Antioch, right, played the same role that William Carey did. The, the church really at this point in Acts, Acts 1 through 12, were sort of content just to stay at home. Content to stay in Jerusalem, if you will. And, and, and maybe some people went out, but it wasn't intentional. It wasn't strategic. Maybe some people went out, they found themselves in different places, they started preaching the gospel, people believing. And so it was spreading um, just naturally. But these leaders in Antioch were intentional about fulfilling the, the Great Commission. They were praying and seeking the Lord. God gave them guidance on how they can go and evangelize the unreached peoples of the world. And we're going to see the birth of, of Christian missions. Just as William Carey helped to found the Bible, the Baptist Missionary Society. So these people formed a society as well. They didn't call themselves the, uh, the Biblical Mission Society, but that's really what it was. The, these people right, just gathered together. Maybe they didn't have that word society in their mind. They gathered together, sent out their best to preach the gospel to the heathen. The very thing that aligned with the heart of William Carey and the Baptist Missionary Society. In verses 1 through 2, we see our first point, expect great things. And again, this is a tribute to William Carey in a great sermon on uh, Isaiah 52. Right? It was to expect great things. And then you can probably guess my second point. Attempt great things, what's going to be. But expecting great things. And that's just the, the idea here. They're, they're ministering to the Lord. They're, they're praying to the Lord with expectation that He's going to do great things in their life. And, and I, I uh, see, I, I trust you can even see what, what's happening there. Look at verse 2, what they were doing. He says, They were, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, they're expecting great things to God, they're just praying to God. Um, the New American Standard Bible here says that they were serving the Lord. Uh, the 1995 version of the New American Standard says that they were ministering to the Lord. And, and the reason why it's translated this way with these, the New American Standard translators, they're wrestling with the word here because it's a it's a really a priestly word. It's not necessarily the word of uh, worship is normally proskuneo, like to to bow down, right? To to just bow and and worship. that's not what this word is. This word is more liturgical. Um, it, it describes the picture of the priestly activities, bringing an animal to the Lord, laying hands on the bull, praying the Lord for forgiveness, accepting the sacrifice, cutting the, cutting the animal, bleeding it out, placing it upon the altar, right? The serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord in a real tangible, physical way. That's this word here. It's not just the word of bowing down where worship might, might get there. And so um, serving or ministering is a, it's a challenge to try to get this word about. But, but obviously, right, those in Antioch weren't offering animal sacrifice. Here it's used metaphorically just to speak about, about worship. But it's more than just singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I, I think it's, it's uh, more than praying, even because we're going to see in verse 3 that after fasting and praying, but it's not the same thing. They were ministering, Lord, they were praying. Uh, um, if anything, I think the idea here is of a sacrificial, like, giving of themselves to God. Like, just as the animals were, were giving themselves, they also, I think these people at Antioch, were laying themselves out wholeheartedly engaged in the worship of the Lord, just with open hands, just saying, God, what do you want of me? What do you want of us? Tell us, direct us. We're really, we are your servants. We, we want to know from you what to want. They were expecting great things from God. And we see their, their passion here in the, the next phrase. Not only were they worshiping, serving, ministering to the Lord, they were also fasting. 
means in this case abstaining from food, right? Which means their worship was probably more than just an hour on Sunday morning. Um, there was more to it. Maybe it was an all-day prayer meeting where they came in the morning and, and, and prayed all day, served all day, sang all day, worshiped, poured out their hearts to God all day. Maybe it was over, over a week and, and they'd pledged not to eat very much. Maybe just juice and water maybe they were drinking or, or, or maybe they fasted every day until evening. Yeah. Fasting, by the way, in, in the Bible oftentimes is a time of distress where you're really, really seeking something of the Lord. There's something you say, God, I just, I'm just seeking you immensely. And I've seen this very often, like people who are in intense difficulties and trials. Some is maybe they're not hungry. Maybe some is they just need help from the Lord. They often fast. And I think there's a crisis point here that they're reaching with this fasting is the idea here. They are, they are yearning and striving and doing whatever they can to, to seek what the Lord would do. You say, well, who was expecting these great things? We skip verse 1, so we go back down there. Now they're in the church at Antioch. So these are people in the church. These were leaders in the church, prophets and teachers. we got five names mentioned here. There's Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These men are prophets and teachers. So some prophets, some teachers, maybe some of both, but leaders of the church. And these, these five names are here. We, we know quite a bit about two of them. Okay, kids, what do you know? Who do you know about these, this whole list of people? Who are two that you know? Trey. Saul. Saul. Exactly right. And who was the other one you know quite a bit about? Barnabas. Right? Barnabas is mentioned first, so let's talk about him. Right? He, he was sent from the Jerusalem church to Antioch when this Antioch was starting to have a church and starting to bud with some peoples. And he, he went there and he surveyed the situation, was super encouraged, was encouraging them, but then said, oh, I need to go get someone else. And so we went to Tarsus to get Saul and brought Saul back there to Antioch. And uh, so they were there ministering among the people for a time. And then they're the ones who took this gift to Jerusalem and, and delivered it to Jerusalem. And according to the last verse of of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul then came back from Jerusalem when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is, is Mark. And so these two have just returned from Jerusalem. They're there. They're key leaders in the church. They're somewhat outsiders to the church, though. Um, but they are, they are there. And uh, we're going to see uh, just throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to be about Barnabas and Paul, Saul, Paul, whatever his name is. And then starting in 16 and following, it's all about Paul. And by the way, it's going to be all about missions uh, beginning at this point on. We know a lot about these men. Now, the other three, we know their names. That's all we know. But if, if Luke had wanted to, he could have told us much stories about each of these men. I, I'm sure. But we don't know under the Spirit of God, so we can't spend much time about them. All we can know is that uh, uh, the first one, Simeon, we know his nickname. What's his nickname? Simeon called... Niger, right, which means black. He was a black man. And it wasn't a racial slur in any way. It was just a, a comment on his complexion. He's probably from Africa, probably darker skin than everyone else. And they called him Niger. Um, some have speculated this is the same Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. Matthew 27, verse 32, but that's speculation. Well, perhaps that would have been mentioned. We don't know. But he was a, an African who this Simon was. Uh, and then of Lucian, we know where he was from. He was from... Cyrene, that northern Africa, so he was an African as well. Maybe he's a little light, more light-skinned than Simeon. Um, maybe he was one of those described in Acts 11, verse 20, when there are some men coming from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is an island 
just outside of uh, Antioch, Cyrene, those quite a bit of ways in northern Africa. So this man came from there. That's all we know about him. A Manaean, we read here that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. However, it's probably more than a lifelong friend. He was a foster brother with, uh, with Herod Antipas. So that like sort of he, he grew up as a foster brother. Um, that's why the New American Standard says Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now that's not to be confused with Herod Agrippa in chapter 12 who died of worms. This is another Herod. Like Herods were like, like the Bushes or the Clintons, right? This, these families of people who were the rulers. And so the, this was Herod Antipas who reigned in Galilee during the days of Jesus. And um, Manaean was a foster brother of Herod. He certainly had a lot of political connections. And so these five were... These five men were high-powered men. They were leading men of the church and leading the charge in biblical missions uh, to begin. Um, now, I'm not sure why they gathered to seek the Lord fervently. Um, I don't know if it was on their mind, this whole missions emphasis, or whether just saying, God, we're here in Antioch and we're growing in this church. What is it, oh God, that you would have of us? It's kind of what I tend to think is happening. They're, they're really praying for the Lord. I'm not sure they were like William Carey's Missionary Society. But I think they're just open to seeing what the Lord would want of them. Just simply expecting great things from the Lord as they were serving Him and worshiping and fasting Him before the Lord. And then God came through. Look at what it says in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which... I have called them. This was unmistakable direction given by the mouth of the Lord clearly. The Holy Spirit spoke to them, identified two of them as those who were called out for a specific task. Now, there is some difficulty here to know exactly how this Holy Spirit communicated this, but I take it straightforward. The Holy Spirit spoke audibly, spoke real words. In other words, if you'd have been in that room... You would have heard a voice from heaven said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. I do believe that, that it was a clear voice from heaven, a little bit like when Jesus was baptized, right? And, and the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. If you're there, you heard that. And if you're in this room, you would have heard, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this is far different than people speak today. Even was speaking with some people yesterday who talked to me about how God told me this, God told me that. God told me this. I mean, I mean, today people say that, right? God told me I should go to this place, or God told me I should take this job, or God told me I should marry this person, or God told me I should go and talk with this person. I don't think they mean what was happening here. I don't think they mean the Holy Spirit spoke to them audibly so that, oh, when did he talk to you? Oh, well, he talked to me last Thursday. Was anybody with you? Yeah, my wife was with me, and she heard the same thing from God. That's not what people mean. What, what people mean when they say that God told them, it just is a and I believe God moves in this way, right? There's a stirring of the, their inner being, inner being to do what's right, right? Their conscience is there, or the, the guidance of the Lord, certainly. But when these apostles speak about God speaking, I think they, they're talking audibly. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit speaking audibly in several other instances. It speaks to the miraculous nature of the book of Acts. That's why many people call the book of Acts not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because you see the spirits moving so much. And, and we could expect this in that day when they had prophets. I just mentioned in verse 1, he received direct revelation from God to speak clearly of his will, like Agabus, right? Probably he heard straight from God there's going to be this famine, and so he prophesied out there's going to be this famine, and 
It's not shocking to us with Holy Spirit speaking audibly to them. Now, what exactly was meant by verse 2 and this task or this work to which I've called them? So far, it's ambiguous. But in verse 3, we get some clarity what the Holy Spirit meant. He meant that Barnabas and Saul should go out to the nations and tell others outside of Antioch the truth about the gospel, the truth about Jesus, right? Go to different cities and tell them about Jesus, right? Uh, clearly with a, not just a happenstance, hey, who's all coming along? But you go out and you go and you talk with people because that's what we see in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That is, they fasted more, they prayed more, they laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul. There's a sign of affirmation, a sign of yes, authority of the church. We are, are blessing you. We are with you with this. We are commending you with this. And you go on. That's my second point here is attempt great things. That's what verse 3 is about. And both of these taken from William Carey's Isaiah 54 sermon, right? Uh, expect great things. Attempt great things. Now, it's important here you see the order. Um, the order's been messed up on many occasions. I've heard people say, oh, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. It's like, <laughs> that's not what you do, right? You don't go out and just try something and say, God, will you bless it? No, you say, God, what is it that you want? I'm expecting you to do great things. And then you go out and do those in the trust of God. It lines up with a famous quote that I, I think I quoted last week in my prayer. I can't, I can't remember. It's attributed to John Bunyan. It's attributed to a lot of other people. I don't know who it is. But the quote says this. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Right? You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. In other words, right? prayer must come first. You must seek the Lord first. You must seek expectations from Him. And then after that, you can do more than pray. You can go out and work. You can, you can go forth to do His will. And, and this is what Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John fifteen five. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's, there's nothing that we can do apart from Christ. That's why it's important to connect first by praying and seeking, ministering to the Lord and expecting great things from Him. And then, and only then, going out in His power to attempt great things from Him. Right? That's what we do, right? We seek His blessing, His grace, His power, and then we, we go out. In fact, so you think about the motto of our church, right? What's the motto of our church? Rock Valley Bible Church exists to enjoy His grace and to extend His glory. That order is super important. We first enjoy His grace, right? We, we understand, we, we see, we expect, we experience these great things from God. And then what do we do? We go out to extend His glory. We're attempting great things for God. And that order is super important. And I'm not sure if that order ever happens to you in your life as you seek to do things for God. It happens for me every Monday night. As you all know, I like to play pool, and Monday night's my pool night. And so I'm, every time I'm, I'm driving, and, and, I'm, and I'm driving, and if you were in the car with me at that time, I probably wouldn't do this, but if you were in the car and I didn't know you were in the car, you'd, you'd be hearing me praying out loud, God, I just pray that you would open hearts tonight, that you would give me gospel opportunities, that you would raise spiritual conversations, that you would soften hearts, that I would be able to be a light in this dark place. And I pray that fervently all the way to pool. 
And this past Monday, um, I happened to meet someone new. I'd, I'd never met him before. We're playing some games together, and my, my new friend was down there racking the, the balls for me because I won, right? If you lose, you're, you're rack boy. And so he was racking for me because it was kind of an informal time, and he's racking for me. And then there's this other guy who kind of knows me a little bit who's, who's walking by the way, kind of walks behind him and, and says, hey, you better be careful what you say because he's a priest. And so he, he walked on on his way, and... Uh, and then the guy who was racking the ball was here. As soon as he said he's a priest, he went, because he'd realized some things that he had said to me earlier. And he said, is that, is that true? And I said, no, no, I'm not a priest. He said, but I am a pastor. So it's somewhat, somewhat the same. Um, but at that point, this guy was walking across. I wanted to correct him. And I, I said across the hall, I said, hey, I'm, I'm not a priest. He said, I'm a pastor. I said, there's a big difference between a priest and a pastor. A priest brings people to God. A pastor points people to God. But people who call themselves priests today aren't doing a very good job of that. They really can't bring you to God. But I can. Right? A, a pastor can point you to God. So kind of that was, that was way out there right, for everyone. I thought that was a, a good opportunity. And um, then there was some banter around. Um, a person made some disparaging, funny comments about priests, which in light of the news and everything around, was appropriate just to see how evil that system is. And I said, yeah, I'm not, we're not, I'm not that way. I point you to God through Christ. And then I got to playing pool, and uh, this guy, with that in his mind, uh, just knew that. And then uh, at one point, he used the Lord's name in vain. It's just a habit for him. And um, he, uh, he then apologized to me. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I said, you don't need to apologize to me? Right? You need to apologize to the one whose name you used in vain. I said, but he offers forgiveness. If you believe and trust and repent. And uh, so he, he did talk to me later about how he just can't help it because of the way he was raised. Like that's all that he's been around and he doesn't really understand. So I'm just, just praying for opportunities. But that's, that's what I, I, I'm doing here, right? I'm expecting great things for God and I'm attempting things for God just to stir these people who have very little light in their life. And uh, just even... One of them went in the hospital um, just yesterday, had some blood clots in his, his lungs, and so he called me, right? He emailed me, didn't have my phone number. I called him back and talked with him, prayed with him, and he's um, just kind of becoming a pastor over these, these people is what I'm trying to do, and some have no interest in it, and some I'm just praying that God would just do something among these people. But that's what we do, right? We, we pray that God would, would, would do great things and then we attempt great things. And that's what we see here in, in chapter 13. We see the apostles going out. And, and even if you look in verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. And so here's, here's a little map um, I showed you a couple weeks ago. But here's, here's Antioch, and then they went down to Seleucia by the by the sea, and then they sailed across to this island of Cyprus. They went to Salamis, and they go through the whole city of Paphos. And we'll look at that next week as we look in verses 4 and following of, of what they're doing. In, in fact, even you can probably find that map if you turn to the, the last book of your Bible, the, the, the very last book of your Bible, the book of maps. You might have it in the back of your Bible. Uh, you might find some maps there to be able to trace through exactly where they went. But they went out. And, and this, by the way is a, a turning point in the book of Acts. You remember the, the key statement in the book of Acts? There's one verse that really outlines the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus says to the disciples, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in, help me now, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest part of the earth. So we've seen Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7. We've seen Judea and Samaria in chapters 4 through 12. And now we're going to see 13 through 28. We're going to see what? The ends of the earth as the Apostle Paul like brings things out for sure. The first missionary journey is going to take us through chapters 13 and 14. And that's here's the map of the missionary journey. They're going to go down through Cyprus. They're going to land in Italia and Perga and Pamphylia and go up to another Antioch that's called Pisidian Antioch because it's in Pisidia. And then go into Iconium and Lystra and then Derby, and then trace back the other way and then come back home and report back at the end of chapter 14. That's kind of like where we're going in uh, the next month. Really exciting, right? We're going to get to go and see how these, how these disciples, how Paul and Barnabas went out. Uh, beginning in chapter 15 through the end of 18, we're going to see another journey that they take. And then in chapter 18, really through the end of the book, it's really another missionary journey. Like, it really struck me this week as I was studying this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote all these letters to church, he wasn't a pastor. He was a missionary. He was a missionary to foreign lands, bringing the gospel to people who had never heard of Christ before. And so we're going to get up close and, and, and personal with this missionary. You know, I love it from time to time. One of the privileges of being a pastor is that when missionaries come... Uh, here we get to have them in our home and so we've had many missionaries in our home and our kids have had dinners with many missionaries you get to hear the stories about what's taking place in foreign lands and so like that's the apostle paul and we get to see the stories firsthand of what he's experienced he goes to these foreign lands but it, it marks a big change also i, I believe in, in the in, in the plan of god because israel and and the old testament the the plan of god was more come and see uh, the, the institution of the temple and the place where, G, where, where God said, you need to come there three times a year. You need to worship here in the temple. You need to have your sacrifices here. It's come and see the temple. Come and see the priests. Come and see the animals sacrificed. Come and look at the veil and realize you can't get beyond that. But come and see the place where God is and, and see the high priest go in and, and intercede for you. Queen of Sheba, why don't you come and see all the glories of Solomon, all the glories of the temple, all the glories of the, the nation of Israel. But here we see the change in the New Testament. And Jesus right, alluded to it, go and make disciples. It's not a come and see religion. Christianity is a go and tell religion. It's going out and it is telling people. It's not so much how you come in and see. It's about you going out and you showing. Right? It, it's, it's about... It's about us going right into the world. Not, now, it's not that we should become worldly, right? but that we should be in the world, but not of the world. In fact, I, I received an email from some old college friends, and they're trying to raise money for a basketball team. And this is a basketball uh, guy from our team, and he says, I just want you guys to imagine, and uh, imagine you're, you're just getting done with your basketball practice. It was a hard practice. And so you go to Cherry Street, which was a bar in town where I was. You go to Cherry Street and you have some older people, older former basketball players come and say, let me buy you a drink. Can I buy you a drink? And he just said, just think about how refreshing that would have been if after one of our hard practices we'd gone to Cherry Street and these older basketball players said, buy you, are you willing to buy a drink for these people? And then, and then he said in the email, well, I think all of you would except for Stevie Ray is what I was called back then. Even here, 30 years later, still have a reputation that I just, I'm not involved in alcohol at all. 
And the college people knew that. And people at the bar know that, where I am, where I play pool. I'm in the world, but I am not of the world. I'm not swearing. I'm not picking that up. I'm trying to be light to the world. And that's what God calls us to. And so many times as Christians, we just kind of hole up in our world and think that the world is so evil out there, we need to protect, and this is where we're going to be. The world is evil. But we got to be out in the world because we got to reach and be them, not be influenced by the world. If ever you're in the world, you're being influenced by the world, stay away. You stay away like massive. But if you can be in the world and not be influenced by the world, but be light to the world, that's exactly what we are called to do. Philippians 2.14. Do you know how you can be unlike the world? Don't complain at anything. Because the world complains. You just think about it. You go to your office next week, or you go to wherever you are going to be this next week with unsafe people, and you realize how just the common language is complaining, grumbling at the boss, grumbling at the society, grumbling at, at anything. And he says this, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Just don't be grumblers. That, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You will shine as lights in the world if you don't grumble and complain. Just right there. Just shine as lights, be different, right? Shine the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ to other people. Well, these disciples here, Barnabas and Saul, they go out. Are you going out? Where is your out? You know, Yvonne and I were out in our neighborhood this is past week, and we're walking, and we're just trying to be our out. And um, it's interesting, we were walking, and uh, we saw a house for sale, and um, uh, I said, oh, let's, let's meet this person who's here. He's, I was out getting his mail. And so we're about like 50 feet away and getting his mail. So we're like gearing up. We're going to talk to him, just trying to reach out to get to know neighbors. And I went there and just said, hey, you just moved in. He said, yeah, we did. And, and so we shook our hands and, and he went, Steve Brandon. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm Chris. We coach, you coached my kid's soccer team 18 years ago. Right, and he, we just had some some contacts and some comments about some things, and just kind of reaching out and being bold to be able to talk with people. Just encourage you to do that. Then we had some conversations, and we'll be trying to eat together with his family as they move to the neighborhood from Winnebago, and just see what the Lord does with us and their, their friendship. And it was encouraging to hear. But that's what it means for us right now is to go across the street. Now, sometimes I've gone on missionary opportunities before, but maybe for you it just means going out across the street. Maybe from some of your kids, it means across your desk. Are you going out? That, that's going to be our whole application here, right? That, that's the whole issue with Acts is to be my witnesses. Go out and speak with people. Go out and be a witness for Christ. And just as the apostles were here, right, the, the fathers of Christian missions, just like, just like uh, William Carey was the father of modern missions, so likewise, that's going to be our our passion and our, our drive is that we got to be out speaking and talking however we can. But not first without what? Enjoying His grace. Because you have to enjoy His grace first before you extend His glory. So the whole purpose of Sunday morning is we gather here to be edified and enjoy His grace, right? So then we can extend His glory. And, and one way that we can enjoy His grace is in the, the Lord's Supper, right? Not, a, not, not as if the, the, the juice here or the, the bread... Um, is in any way like meritorious or helpful for us in terms of like magic potion. It's not that. But it is the reflection upon Jesus to 
to see his grace. I just, just want to turn you over. One, one verse we're going to see in, in upcoming weeks, maybe not next week, but the week after that, we'll see Acts 13 and verse 38. Why don't you, why don't you look there? This is what Paul says. If you, if you look on your map, Paul is in city in Antioch right here. He's in the synagogue. They said, if you got any words of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stands up and he starts speaking this word of encouragement right there from the audience. And then he, he says this. Let it be known to you, therefore, after preaching the gospel, after talking about Jesus, not experiencing decay, being raised from the dead, he says, Acts chapter 13, 38, through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And there's grace. Is it the forgiveness of sins in Jesus? If you use the name of the Lord in vain, there's forgiveness of sins in Jesus. If you sin in other ways, if you're angry, right, if you go in places you shouldn't be going, if you're clicking where you shouldn't be clicking, if, if, you're, if you're saying things you shouldn't be saying, if you're thinking things you shouldn't be thinking, if you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, there is forgiveness of sins through this man's name. And by him, verse 39 says, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, the law of Moses says to do this and you will live. Right? But if, what, if I, what if I fail to do this? Right? That's where Christ is. Right? That's where the, where the gospel comes, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are his child and nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. That's forgiveness of sins and that's what comes through the cross. And that's why Jesus died on the cross to, to pour out his blood, to pour out his body so that we might not be poured out in our deaths as well. So let me pray and then we're going to sing a song and I'll come back up here and we will eat of the bread and drink of the cup together. Father, I would pray that you would help this passage to come deep into our hearts that just even these in Antioch were expecting great things from you, ministering to you, realizing your, your goodness and grace to them, and only then did they attempt great things. And, and Father, I pray that we as a church body, as a church family here at Rock Valley Bible Church would, would hear and know, God, of, of the things that you have um, you've done for us in Jesus, that you have uh, God sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. And that we might experience that and know that deep into our innermost being, O oh God. And then from there, everything that we do would stir from that. God, that then we would attempt great things for you. God, not because we're powerful in ourselves, but because we are, are powerful in you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And in that, oh God, we rejoice. I do pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, as we just do this every four to six weeks or so at Rock Valley Bible Church, as we um, just take this bread and remember the, the death of Jesus, and we, we, drink, um, we, we drink this juice, fruit of the vine, as a remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. God, stir our hearts towards you. I pray even now that we might just look at our lives, examine our lives, and repent of things we need to repent of. God, that we would, would turn from the vain things of this life to you, the living God who gives us life in Jesus Christ. So God, be gracious to us. Stir our hearts afresh in the glories and the reality of the gospel of Christ. As we eat this bread and, and as we drink this cup, may it be a, a refreshing, encouraging time again, once again, to see and enjoy the grace of God.
You empower us to extend your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.